3CR broadcasts from the stolen land of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Good morning, Claudia. How are you doing? Not too bad. We missed you last week. Uh, you know, you got to take your birthday off. you got to have a sleep in. <laughs> did you have a nice birthday? Yeah, I did. I did. I had to go to work in the end, but other than that, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> a year older. Yeah, 27. The 27 club I'm in now. Oh, that sounds very mature. <laughs> My mum said she missed Patty last week. So. Yeah, you've got you've got a fan club out there. Oh. <laughs> so it's just the two of us today. Just the two of us. Ella and uh, Alice are off having COVID tests because they were feeling a bit off yesterday. So um, especially with the the latest breakout, uh, what have you got to tell us about the new restrictions and uh, the latest on the numbers, Patty? So uh, the new restrictions that came into place from 6pm last night um, limit private private gatherings in the home. Uh, That's five visitors you're allowed per day. Uh, Public gatherings are limited to 30 people. So a public gathering is like a a picnic or a barbecue. It's not any time you're in public. So uh, I think uh, restaurants and bars, there's no capacity limits placed on them at the moment. Um, face, bar- face masks will need to be worn indoors unless an exemption implies. So that's uh, workplaces, restaurants, bars, secondary schools. Um, you'll need to wear a face mask in there and obviously on public transport. I noticed on the tram on the way in today, everyone was wearing their masks, whereas over the past few weeks, it's been getting pretty relaxed. Um, and that the face, mark re- re- the face mask requirement applies to everyone aged 12 years and over. Um, and I think at the moment there's nine community cases, and if we get a um, uh, an update on that later in the show, we'll give that to you then. And the new protection um, measures apply for the whole of Victoria, so it's not just Greater Melbourne, it's all of rural and regional. And if you're tra- travelling interstate, you ought to hop on the website and check because a couple of the states have put down borders uh wa i think and queensland i heard this morning and new zealand as well so anyone planning to travel in the travel bubble uh should uh keep their eye on that yeah and and also for the exposure sites there's new exposure sites being added all the time i understand that the mcg uh during the collingwood port adelaide uh, match is now an exposure site and so if you are sitting in a specific area uh listed on the vic gov Department of Health website, um, you'll probably need to isolate and get a test. Absolutely. Okay, so what have we got on for the show today? Um, well, one one exciting thing that I'm going to be t- uh, interviewing Gideon Obazanek about later is the Rising Festival, which I hope gets to go ahead. It's uh, 
kicking off in Melbourne from today. It's running from the 26th of May until the 6th of June. It's art, performance, music and ceremony all around Melbourne. There's 130 events featuring the work of more than 750 artists. Uh, and also we have an interview from Idwin. Uh, Idwin is talking to Andrew Morrison from the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association about the alleged human rights and environmental abuses of Australian-Canadian mining company Oceana Gold at the Depido Gold and Copper Mine in the northern Luzon province of Philippines. And I'll be talking to Professor Royanne West at 7.15, so very shortly. She's the CEO of the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, and they're actually meeting in Melbourne uh, today uh, for a conference. I'm not sure how they'll be affected by the uh, new restrictions, but she's coming on to talk to us about uh, what's happening in their sector and the sorts of issues they're facing in Indigenous health, uh, trying to, to bring equity and uh, close the gap there. So, yeah, she'll be coming on to talk to us in a few minutes. And to round up the show, we're going to have... Uh, an interview with uh, a campaigner who's going to talk about the Australian cultural heritage laws and why they're not protecting uh, sacred sites in Australia. Mm. So that'll be a good one to round the show up. Fantastic. And uh, did you have a note to say on the Reconciliation Week? Yeah, we'll come to Reconciliation Week uh, a bit later, but uh, before we decide, I wanted to acknowledge that today is Sorry Day and... uh, perhaps a content warning for listeners who are Aboriginal and and Torres Strait Islanders. There may be some information uh, material today that has cultural sensitivity, Uh, so you may want to tune out if you feel that might be triggering for you. But we do want to acknowledge um, this important day and to remind listeners to... Take a moment to reflect on the mistreatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who were forcibly removed from their families and communities. Uh, We now know them as the Stolen Generations and this is a day to acknowledge their strength, their survival and to reflect on how all Australians can play a part in the healing process for these people and our nation as a whole And I'd encourage you to have a look at the website australianstogether.org.au. There's some important information there and ways that you can join in in this healing process and different uh, materials to access. And it's important to continue recognising that this isn't a matter just of the past and that today Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are still 106 times more likely than non-Indigenous children to be removed from their families. And this is obviously uh, an ongoing source of intergenerational trauma and distress for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families and communities. So let's all uh, think about that today. And uh, we're going to go to a song, I believe, from Archie Roach, who uh, wrote Took the Children Away. The story's right, the story's true I would not tell lies to you Like the promise said they did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep 
Said to us, come take care of him. Set us up on mission land. Told us to read, to write, and pray. Then they took the children away, took the children away. The children away. Snatched from their mother's breast, said this is for the best, took them away. Welcome and the police came, said you've got to understand. We'll give to them what you can't give. Teach them how to really live. Teach them how to live their self. Humiliated them instead. Taught them that and taught them this. And others taught them prejudice. Took the children away. The children away Breaking their mother's heart Carrying us all about Took them away One dark day on Framling Hill Came and didn't give a damn My mother cried Go get their dead He came running Mother's tears were falling down Dad shaped up and stood his ground He said, you touch my kids and you fight me Then they took us from a family Took us away They took us away Snatched from our mother's breast Said this is for the best Took us away Back to their mother, back to their father. 
Thank you, Archie Roach, for that beautiful song. So this uh, week, starting tomorrow, is National Reconciliation Week. So it's a chance for all Australians to come together and and try and make up for some of these injustices that have uh, been so catastrophic for our Indigenous people. We want to make this a just and equal country, so let's celebrate our first peoples and what we can do as a country as a whole together to make a united community. I'm sure our listeners are pretty aware of uh, what Reconciliation Week is about, but if anyone is wondering about the dates 27th of May to 3rd of June and why they've been chosen, the dates commemorate two significant milestones in the reconciliation journey of Australia the first being the 1967 referendum where Australia's voted to change the constitution so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would be counted as part of the population like all Australians. The second uh, significant event was, of course, the famous High Court Mabo decision which introduced the principle of native title into Australian law and changed... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' rights in relation to land ownership and that's uh, been a massive change in our legal system. Obviously still a long way to go but uh, two major milestones that uh, bookend the uh, dates for uh, Reconciliation Week. And uh, it's a week where the 97% of Australians who are not Indigenous can play their part in making change If you hop on to Reconciliation Australia's website, that's nrw.reconciliation.org.au, you'll find a list of 20 ways Australians can make uh, this change. And uh, I think it's quite an inspiring list. I'm just going to mention a few of the uh, actions you can take. But the one that starts the uh, heads the list is to move from being an ally to an accomplice. And I think that really sums up the uh, togetherness that we all need to show. We, uh, we should really be calling out racism, talking about history, learning about our local history and making our workplaces and schools culturally safe. So there's lots on this week and much of it is online. So even if uh, some of the in-person events are affected by the COVID restrictions, I would urge you to hop online uh, for a number of events that are basically happening everywhere in Melbourne, uh, Frankston, Coburg, Glen Ira uh, and in the city uh, starting today at 12.30 lunchtime. There's a live stream uh, National Reconciliation Week oration by Professor Marsha Langton. And uh, there's a myriad of events from movie nights to uh, art activities online, dance wo- workshops online, and much more to participate in. 
So check out those online and also check out any restrictions that might be in place. We're going to come back in a moment and be talking to Professor West about nurses and midwives. Hey, you mob. It's up to all of us to keep checking in when we're out. Checking in is the quick and easy way to stop the spread of coronavirus and keep protecting our elders, communities and each other. Before you leave home, download the Service Victoria app and keep checking in because checking in keeps us safe and open. Stay deadly, stay safe. Adrisi R Supporta. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of Community Powered Radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, Community Powered Radio. Seeds that things can never take from Our mother's womb prison Always beyond apocalypses and wrong So don't extinction Roman restriction Trapped in missions The colonial system Assimilation prescription Spirit never trapped We always hear glisten Ancestors wisdom Forevermore given yo Yes we would always survive Yes, we would love to survive. 
788, there was nothing but black. There was magic manifested in stacks. To the gun barrel, tried to bring on genocidal collapse. But now, 200 plus seasons have elapsed. Conquest didn't work, caught up in new tracks. Packed with a pain of generations impact. Put them back to this constant hideous attack. But yet we stand strong, inspired of all of that. Quick sand, snakes, and spiders. Yes, still surviving. Mother Bell of Time's true, mass shots colliding. The richer we got up through the sand of that silence. Salam, shots and sour, creators perspiring. Flood that the color through the policy and violence. Every family in you was a black hole rising. It's a black hole rising. Yeah, we always survive here. Yes, we will always survive. No matter what they do, then we never gon' die. Yes, we will always survive. 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 No matter what they do, then we never gon' die. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive. Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. We're now going to be talking with Professor Royanne West. She's the Chief Executive Officer at the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, who are meeting in Melbourne uh, today and yesterday to discuss issues relating to equity and progress in healthcare for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge today's Sorry Day and pay my respects and acknowledge the distress for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Professor West is a Kalkadoon and Dudungi woman from Kunklari and Mount Isa in Queensland. She's got quite an amazing nursing history. There are three generations of registered nurses in her family and she's worked in the Royal Flying Doctor Service, Forensic Mental Health, as well as being Australia's first Professor of Indigenous Health and the inaugural Dean of the First People's Health at Griffith University. Last year, she was appointed as the CEO of the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, and she's here to talk to us right now. Good morning, Professor West. Uh, good morning. How are you? Very well, thank you. I hope um, your event hasn't been uh, too affected with the new restrictions uh, no. Uh, well, well, fortunately or unfortunately, we had um, already commenced the event when the first level of restrictions had come in. Um, so, of course, we're listening to the, um, the state government's advice as well as Hotels Australia advice and 
um, put in additional measures as well. But it's one of the reasons why we went to state and territory forums is to um, just to decrease the risk around the, um, the border restrictions that may arise. Um, funnily enough, we left Melbourne until one of our last forums um, in anticipation of things settling. And then ironically, we turn up to <laughs> Melbourne and this happened. <laughs> You definitely can't uh, plan with any certainty these days, but I'm I'm really glad to hear that you're all uh, functioning there because uh, you know once you get people together for important events, it's uh, a real shame yeah. if they have to be uh, cancelled. So I just wanted to start off with the big question about closing the gap, which we hear so much about, and particularly in terms of health outcomes for First Nations people, the gap is still yawning wide. Is the approach mm. being taken by successive governments just wrong? Um, in regards to Captain M specifically, absolutely, we have a responsibility in contributing um, to the broader agenda. However, the gap that we need to be closing first within nursing and midwifery is that um, First Nations nurses and midwives only account for just over 1% of the broader nursing and midwifery workforce in this country. So... Um, so we question of increasing Sorry. numbers. Absolutely. And it's certainly Captain M turns 25 next year and the reason why Captain M was established was to increase the numbers of Indigenous nurses and midwives nationally. Um, and we know that given that nurses and midwives make up for the, the most significant aspect of, a, um, of the world's health workforce, that unless we commit to increasing First Nations First Nation nursing and midwives nationally, we will continue to grapple with the issues and the gaps um, that, that everyone is working to close. So what sort of target do you need to get to in order to service the uh, First Nations community sufficiently in terms of nurses and midwives? Yeah. You know, across the board, most people are, are, um, are, are sort of wanting to achieve the equity target of 3%. Um, however, um, we argue that if you're, if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are disproportionately represented across every aspect of Australia's healthcare system, 3% is a very low bar um, to have. Um, and one example is that um, any of the, the prevalence rates of renal disease in this country are like no other, for First Nations people are like no other in the world. Um, so if you've got a renal unit that's got a 70% um, chair occupancy of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, Captain M argues that the nursing workforce within that unit should reflect um, the patients in which they're being cared for. So it's really a case-by-case -case, uh, scenario when it comes to those numbers and uh, getting the right sort of balance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the targets are often very simple um, and the targets that are certainly set at a national level and at um, jurisdictional level uh, are 3% across the whole of Australia's workforce. Mm. So that includes administration, cleaning, um, wards, all of that, which are really important roles. But um, there needs to be a much greater focus on um, senior um, Indigenous um, health leadership and for Captain M, senior Indigenous nursing leadership. Um, across 25 years, we've been focusing on increasing Indigenous nurses and midwives out of the university system, which is simply an undergraduate um, but we know to get into our senior nursing and midwifery positions like chief nursing and midwifery officers in the state and nationally that we need um, more Indigenous nurses and midwives with PhDs and executive lead leadership training. 
And I read an article uh, where you'd been interviewed about uh, nurses and midwives and asked what the biggest issue facing or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives was. And I was surprised to hear that it was racism. <laughs> of all the issues that one could face in a health sector, to, to still mm. be battling that very basic social uh, area of respect and acceptance is... is I was just gobsmacked to, uh, to, to read that. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and, and sadly, people think that the institutional racism that's um, experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients, and there's a significant amount of evidence um, that demonstrates that, that the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workforce is not exempt um, from that impact of that same institutional, organisational and in, in, in individual racism. Um, uh, you know, serendipitous that we should be doing the interview today on what is National Sorry Day, mm. um, but also on the um, George Floyd Memorial Day, which really put institutional racism at the forefront of everyone's minds, not only um, in America, but also in Australia. Yes, and I notice in your um, schedule, the agenda for your conference, you've got a a really broad range of topics being discussed and I think it it's really telling, scanning through those, uh, just the depth and breadth of issues that do affect your workforce. Um, you know, racism is being discussed with Black Lives Matter, uh, trauma and, mm. yeah, there's a healing room that you have open for the, the duration of the conference a dedicated yeah. session for trauma-aware healing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how those two aspects of uh, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander experiences are interconnected with health outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it goes to the first point where I said that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives are not exempt from um, the very reasons why we actually need more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives. There's this um, fallacy that once you become a nurse or a midwife that you um, mustn't get unwell, um, that you'll spend so much time caring for other people. Um, when I entered into the CEO role um, seven months ago, I was adamant about strengthening um, the current First Nations nursing and midwifery workforce, of which we have a strong 5,500 practising nationally and about 2,500 First Nations nursing and midwifery students that sit within our university system across 39 schools of nursing and midwifery nationally. Um, one of the reasons, like you stated, for the high attrition rates in university um, and once they actually graduate from university is because of the experience of racism. Um, and we can't adequately support First Nations, um, the First Nations people that we care for if we aren't caring for ourselves. So the partnership with the National Healing Foundation was a strategic partnership about us looking inwards as a workforce and caring for ourselves so that we can better care for our people. And in turn, keeping those students finishing their courses and staying in the Absolutely. profession and being able to help help people Absolutely. on the cold front. Ab yeah, absolutely. And having the, um, the, the, you know, the tools... Um, the knowledge and the skills to be able to stay well within that process. Um, uh, in, in the university system, we know that um, my PhD developed a model of excellence to increase Indigenous nurses nationally 
completed the PhD in 2012, but the number most significant finding from the PhD is if you are um, a non-Indigenous Australian and you undertake a Bachelor of Nursing in this country, you have approximately 75% chance of completing that degree. Um, sadly, if you're First Nations in this country and you undertake a Bachelor of Nursing, you've got a less than 30% chance of completing that uh, Bachelor of Nursing, and that's even before you set foot on campus. Um, so when we talk about closing the gap, closing the gap for us is about in nursing and midwifery and the leadership of um, Captain M is about closing the gap in completion rates um, for First Nations nursing and midwifery students and closing the gap um, in um, workforce numbers for First Nations nursing and midwifery and wider workforce. That sounds really fundamental. Uh, absolutely fundamental and sadly um, uh, when I completed my PhD we've since analysed that data and collectively for 39 schools of nursing who are one of our biggest programs within most universities in the country we've only improved by 1% per year across a decade so the statistic of a, uh, less than 30% completion for First Nations nursing students has been consistent for two decades so we have a significant amount of work that we need to be doing. Mm. Mm. Well, uh, we wish you the best with that. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's obviously sounds like it's an absolute vital first floor in the, uh, the whole process of closing the gap. I wanted to turn to cultural practices and awareness. Um, early in your career, you've said that you've noticed differences in the way Indigenous and non-Indigenous nurses carried out risk assessments and interpreted symptoms of patients and so forth. Can you share some of the differences you noticed and how that changed your view of cultural safety? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most significant um, experience for me was um, as an early career um, mental health nurse and I worked in a forensic mental health unit. The forensic um, mental health unit was in a regional setting and one of the few that sat outside of a capital city. Um, the unit had 32 beds and sadly 30, 30 of the 32 beds were First Nations um, men and women. Um, so just for a foren forensic mental health unit is a an acute mental health unit and a um, a correction centre, so for people who have been found of unsound mind at the time they had committed. And it's quite a small unit. It had a low, medium and high unit, um, and I was the only Aboriginal nurse in that unit. And what I started to notice is when I was conducting uh, mental status assessment, examination, and the interpretation of um, particular symptoms, that my interpretation was very different than my non-Indigenous um, nursing colleagues. Um, to the point where, um, so probably the most significant, and this would be across the board for any Aboriginal health practitioner that's working within mental health, is the risk of um, what we would see as spiritual, um, you know, what we see as spirituality, so where we have a strong belief that our ancestors or our elders or our family members after they've passed will come back and visit us, um, and a non-Indigenous nurse, because that's not part of what they're... The, you know, belief system is that can easily be interpreted as a um, as psychosis or a hallucina or halluc visual hallucination or auditory hallucination, um, which obviously means the response to that is, is culturally. I understand what's being presented. That doesn't require um, mm, a medical medic intervention. <laughs> a medical intervention or yeah. a diagnosis. That's right. So it's more than about 
um, a, you know, a positive experience for patients within, you know, Australia's healthcare system is that there's clinical implications here, serious Absolutely, clinical. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And um, you've talked about education and training for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives. What's happening for the non-Indigenous students in terms of learning about cultural awareness? Because uh, obviously if uh, there's a shortage of um, First Nations people in the industry, the the shortfall is being made up by people that don't have that background uh, traditionally and culturally. How are they uh, learning about it and is there enough being done in that area? Um, two questions, and I would say yes. There's some um, since the um, nursing and midwifery have certainly led um, the regulated health professions in regards to increasing um, cultural safety education and training for nursing and midwifery. Um, and at a national level, the program accreditation standards have been in place um, for just over 12 years. Which, which one of the standards is mandatory inclusion of a discrete subject on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, history and culture. Um, however, one of the challenges that comes with that is that when you don't have Indigenous nursing and midwifery academics that mm. um, then operationalise that standard, then you get, um, you get a lot of variability across the country. How we know that that particular piece of work needs to be strengthened is that we have we've had that standard in place for over a decade now. Yet our completion rates of Indigenous nursing and midwifery students remains the same at thirty percent, and also that um, that the health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people aren't, aren't improving. So the strategy of increasing the cultural safety of Australia's health workforce, and again in our area, nursing and midwifery. Um, tells us that we need to rethink that strategy. Um, One of the um, presentations I'm giving today is around the design and development of a validated tool um, that measures um, for the very first time the impact and efficacy of that cultural safety training. Um, And it's the first time that an evidence base has been brought to, um, to to that strategy. Yeah, because it's all very well to sit in a cultural awareness session. I mean, I've done half-day sessions and you can go away thinking that you've um, increased your awareness, but there's a lot more to actually embedding that in your um, consciousness and and then there's yeah. obviously a lot of specifics that would, would be relevant to the health industry. Yeah, that's right. And there's a lot of variability. So we're fortunate in nursing that we've got very rigorous standards around the level of education um, across nursing and midwifery education across the country. Unfortunately, we don't have that same level of rigour around cultural safety and Aboriginal health training. And that's the piece of work that Cats and M wants to lead over the coming years in, um, in, in collaboration with other nursing and midwifery leaders. And finally, um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the midwife side of the uh, profession mm. because birthing is obviously uh, the beginning of life and uh, uh, incredibly important experience for both mother, baby, family. Can you tell us what are the important things for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when it comes to giving birth and caring for newborn children? Yeah, absolutely. This is a massive piece of work that's happening around um, major priorities, given um, all of the evidence that around epigenetics, where we know that improving um, early life outcomes um, changes the trajectory for later life outcomes. 
Um, there's some really exciting piece of, um, pieces of work that, be, that are being led um, on birthing on country around the, uh, around the country. Um, the um, three potential birthing on country sites in um, Galawinku, um, Nowra, um, acknowledging Mel Briggs, the Aboriginal midwife, um, Professor Yvette Rowe, the Mullawarradunga Research Centre, um, and certainly um, uh, strategies that are being led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health leaders. Um, and, the, you know, the really significant aspect of those models is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander midwives um, delivering Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander babies the way it used to be. Um, and the improvements in birthing outcomes um, are so successful that the, that, that the um, outcomes of the research are being questioned because they're producing outcomes that the federal government hasn't been able to produce in, in 20 years, in, um, in, in, in one to two years. So it, it, there's some phenomenal work that needs to be backed by the federal government. Well, that's fantastic to hear that, that that's working in the, in the areas that you've been able to establish those facilities. Can you give us a, an image of what that sort of looks like and what birthing on country is about? Yeah, birthing on country, um, contrary to what people think, is a metaphor um, for culturally safe um, birthing. Um, so some people think that birthing is about, um, uh, you know, traditional ways of birthing. And for some of our communities, that is certainly the same. Uh, certainly what it's about, given on the strength, given the strength of the Indigenous cultures, but it means different things for different people. Um, and um, there's been a model that's been developed um, uh, called the RISE model, and it's about um, reforming maternity services, and that's both in, in rural, remote, urban and metropolitan areas. Um, so how you apply those principles of birthing on country within, um, within metropolitan areas. Um, so just to reiterate, birthing on country is a metaphor for what is culturally safe um, birthing um, within, right across Australia's healthcare system. Um, and the work that's being led again by the Molly Waraduga Research Centre at a Charles Darwin University is a beacon um, for maternity services for this country. So it can still be birthing in a hospital unit, but in a culturally safe way. Absolutely, with... absolutely. And the key aspects of that, of that would be strong Indigenous leadership, uh, strong Indigenous governance, making the decisions, um, Indigenous engagement, um, and then Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander midwives for um, sort of the conception of the six-week period, which is their scope of practice, and then Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander from the six-week period through to the um, sort of the two-year-old period. And then the other critical element to that scenario is culturally safe, um, non-Indigenous nurses and midwives. So mm. there's a couple of different aspects that need to be happening um, at the same time. They need to be happening parallel. Otherwise, one, um, it, you know, one of those aspects not working, it just means that the program, it, the program of work wouldn't be as strong or sustainable as if you've got all of those aspects working um, consistently. And really important to establish that relationship as well. Uh, between the the mother and the the child in the best way possible, because that then impacts the the way the child will will present in the world and and function and all of that that follows. Yep, absolutely. And you you're speaking like a mother, are you? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> It's lovely talking to you. I have so many more questions. Um, it's a fascinating area because I think, you know, it's so intersectional and um, we didn't even get to talk about the amazing 
cultural aspects of um, your conference. There's dancing and singing and all sorts of things that are happening um, there. And uh, I just it really struck me the way so many uh, aspects of your culture are being embedded in the the health and the training that you're giving the the nurses and and midwives um and yeah it's it's really something to celebrate and i'm very excited to 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 know that someone with with your experience um is leading all these really important projects for change yeah absolutely and thank you for noticing we've um certainly um, committed to ensuring that cats and am as the peak body for aboriginal and torres strait islander nurses that our cultural role models to other nursing and midwifery peaks um, what caring for Aboriginal people is about. And it's broader than the the biomedical model, which mm. unfortunately is mostly dominated by, and it's about the social, emotional and cultural well-being. And the conference is about showcasing all aspects of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, and that includes all of the, all of the things that you've just identified there. The other thing that, that you can't see in the program is that um, 90% of our suppliers for the conference as we travel around the country have been First Nation suppliers. Um, so we're showcasing dance, language, leadership, intelligence, eldership, um, uh, uh, um, economic development, businesses, all aspects of it. Um, because sadly, Indigenous nurses don't get to experience um, that pride within nursing and midwifery because we're still grappling um, with um, the acknowledgement and inclusion of Indigenous knowledge within nursing and midwifery um, at this point in time. So lots lots to be done um, from the non-Indigenous side in terms of um, really uh, shifting the, the dominance of Western medicine and approaches. Yeah, there's lots to be done by all health leaders, and that includes me as an Aboriginal health leader as well, because I also identify as a nursing leader. And I think that anything that we can learn when we're working with the most vulnerable people within Australia's healthcare system can only teach us how to work with those that are most advantaged within our system. Um, the major shift, and I hear you refer to both cultural awareness and cultural safety, and they're very different concepts. And in the early 1980s, we were teaching about cultural awareness and that was teaching non-Indigenous people about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And now we're in an era where the conversation and the discourse has very much changed to being about cultural safety. And that's about non-Indigenous people learning about themselves and um, and, the, and and what things, what, what parts of Australia's history have influenced the formation of their values and their beliefs and assumptions about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a massive paradigm shift, um, you know, from non-Aboriginal people learning about us to non-Aboriginal people learning about themselves. Thank you so much. Uh, we better let you get off to your uh, morning address to your conference. Uh, that was Professor Royan West, CEO of the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, talking about how they achieve and strive for health equity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. We thank her very much. And we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back to hear Idwin's interview about the mining in the Philippines.
I'm Eidwin. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. And next up, we have Andrew Morrison from the Philippines Australian Solidarity Association. So, Andrew, you're somewhat of a semi-regular on. I know we've had a few different stories around the Philippines over the last few years. Could you give us sort of the short version of what your association is and who the Philippines Australian Solidarity Network are? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Edwin. And uh, hello to all your listeners. It's good to be here again. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so PASA, um, the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, it's a group of volunteers. Um, and the idea is that we bring together Filipino-Australian activists with other Australian activists to take up um, various causes. We want to promote peace, justice, friendship and international solidarity, particularly with between Australia and the Philippines, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, we campaign on a range of issues, but it's typically been a human rights focus. Um, and in recent years, I'm sure you would have heard there's been a huge number of extrajudicial killings in the Philippines, particularly connected with the war on drugs. Um, but there's also been a lot of political killings um, and, and attempts to silence any opposition to the Duterte administration, um, and particularly through a thing called red tagging, where they will accuse um, an activist, a, a human rights lawyer, anyone like that, of, of being a member of the New People's Army. And and then, then they target them and um, sadly, too often kill them. So so that, that, that's, I guess, the, the, the recent kind of things that PASA has been focused on. Um, and of course, we, we're also concerned about um, development, aggression, extractivism, that kind of thing. Mm. So that's our topic of conversation today. Now, last time we chatted was about uh, two years ago. Um, This is about Oceana Gold, so an Australian-Canadian mining conglomerate whose mine in the Philippines, a Dipdio gold and copper mine, has drawn sustained local protest against the company for alleged environmental and human rights abuses. Just a little bit of background on the gold and copper mine. It's located in the northern Luzon province of Nueva Vizca. Did I get that right, Andrew? Nueva Vizcaya. Vizcaya. Yeah, thank you. It's tricky for English speakers. The mine began um, as an open pit commercial in 2013 and was met with immediate protest. So on February the 14th, 2017, the then Philippine Secretary of Environment and National Resources, Gina Lopez, issued a suspension order against the mine. The mine actually continued undeterred throughout that time. At the time, the mine was functional um, under the Financial and Technical Assistance Agreement, and that expired in 2019. So 2020 was kind of the year of this contention, where it was the question of whether the license was going to get reissued or rejected. Uh, We had this huge context of local sustained protest against the mine, as for details we're about to get into, and we kind of had pressures from the, the mine to continue continue activities so that's sort of the setting to this stage um andrew before we do jump into the state of things can you kind of remind us why the mine is so controversial so a list of charges that stick with you mm, yeah yeah um it's a long list and it's mm. um but it, look it's essentially oceana gold they've lied they've bribed they've intimidated they've harassed they've used violence um they've shot people uh, and they've done everything they can to sow discord in the community in Didipio. Um, and that has sadly resulted in the deaths of at least two um, uh, anti-mining activists 
in in the DPO, um, and uh, and a third uh, who was had disappeared, so arrested by the Philippine National Police, uh, and has never been seen since. Um, so no no surprise then that um, the the concerns that um, so the people in the DPO have been protesting and doing everything they can to stop this mine going back 20 years, so long before it started operating. Mm. Um, and Oshana Gold took, took that, that approach and they did everything they, they could to avoid complying with any kind of environment regulations, any kind of free prior and informed consent. Um, and, and so, yeah, no surprise that it's an environmental disaster. Um, the, the water pollution is terrible. The air is when when the mine is operating, and we'll, as, as you mentioned, we'll come to recent news. So it's not currently operating, but the air was filled with dust. There's this that affects people's. Um, you know, there are respira respiratory diseases, um, a lot of health complaints. Um, the fish, the fishing yields, well, the the pollution of the river has sort of killed off most of the fish. They can no longer irrigate with that water, um, so. Yeah, I, I could go on, but I, I think that paints a fairly, you know, it gives, gives you an idea. Mm. And so now returning to like 2019, 2020, can you walk us through the fine details of what transpired over last year? Um, and, yeah. and yeah, I suppose the fact that mainstream media didn't really cover it. Especially in Australia, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I guess the, it, it all started... Oh, and the, the the positive start to this for me was June 2019, when um, Ashana Gold's licence to mine, it's called an FTAA, um, expired, and that meant that they lost the right to mine. But it didn't stop them trying; they tried to continue mining. Uh, and the the local government, the DPO Barangay Council, and the provincial government, uh, the the Nueva Vizcaya um, provincial government. Led by the, the governor there, who I think we'll talk about a bit later, um, both issued stop orders um, to enforce um, the the fact that Oceana Gold had their FTA had expired; they no longer had the right to mine. So those stop orders were ignored, but they, all this happened pretty quickly, um, and the locals in the DPO um, set up a what they call a barricade, so like a picket um, to prevent. Uh, entry and exit from the mine um, and that that's been a, a great success and it, it continues even until now um, uh, in 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 you know, enforcing their right to uh, keep Oceana gold from from operating um, so that was the June 2019 around April 2020 uh, there was a, there was a particularly violent uh, dispersal of that barricade um, and I won't go into the details. It's sufficient to say that that drew the attention of the UN uh, Commission on Human Rights, um, and, and they issued a statement condemning the actions of uh, Oceana Gold and the police, um, and and saying that um, Oceana Gold should should talk to the people in the DPO, Indigenous groups, and other members of the community before they resume mining. Um, so. That's it was great to have that kind of support from the from the UN, um, and the barricade continued. Uh, December twenty twenty, um, bad news. Uh, President Duterte um, 
asked the Department of Environment and Natural Resources and the Department of Finance to consider uh, Oceana Gold's FTAA renewal. <clears throat> so that had been with the Office of the President um, since around mid-2019 when Oceana Gold started to, to apply for a renewal. Um, and they did that also in a dirty tricks way, by the way. Um, so they um, legally should have informed people in DiDipio that they were going to apply for a renewal, but they didn't. They, they did that all secretly. Um, and then um, we come to, uh, to April this year and, and May this year, um, where so one of the big things that, that happened 15th of April, uh, President Duterte lifted a mining ban that had been around for, for quite some time um, and stopped the negotiation of any new kind of mining deals. So it did. Uh, opening the door for, for new mining deals to be negotiated. Um, and it also um, made it easier for people who are new existing mining agreements. Um, so I, I, as far as, I thought, look, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding of this is it doesn't have any direct impact on Oceana Gold's FTAA renewal. Mm. It's, it's more significant as a signal that <clears throat> um, there's a shifting think, thinking from the national government Mm. that they're, they're opening up for mining. Um, and then there's some news in, uh, uh, and the same day, in fact, uh, April, um, the Mines and Geosciences Bureau Director, Wilfred um, Moncano, um, said that um, the, the renewal is with the Secretary of the Department of Environment and Natural Resources and waiting for that signature. And once that... Once that's signed, it would then go to the office of the president. And if he then signed, then Oceana Gold would be free to start mining again, according to, to law. So more bad news. Mm. Uh, and this is a case, you know, um, this is a case of kind of local versus federal government, from my understanding, of the Philippines. So 2020 ended with a passionate appeal um, by the, the local governor, Carlos Padilla, to, to not have the mine have a reissued license. Um, what are we seeing as the sort of the power difference between those two, you know, between federal and the local and, and the, the inconsistencies between them? Yeah, look, uh, this, this is just so difficult to understand or even know anything about because, um, you know, it, it involves things that are not made public. So the, the, the national government's not going to reveal what what's influencing them to shift. Um, I mean, we've seen um, it would really appear that Duterte was serious in his kind of anti-mining stance. I mean, he did hire um, Gina Lopez, the uh, environment secretary that you mentioned earlier, um, who who had a background as an environmental activist. Um, and then, you know, he sat on the request for the FTA renewal for, you know, it's nearly a year that he sat on that before um, these recent things happened. Um, and so it seems that there are other forces at, at work at the national level. And and I, I, I saw a quote recently that sort of sheds a bit of light on this for me from um, a, a bishop, a Manila Catholic bishop, so someone fairly senior in the in the Catholic church, uh, his name's um, Broderick Pabillo, and and he sort of pointed out um, how mining companies are exerting influence because he linked this with the there's going to be an election in 2022, 
and uh, and he what he said I'll quote they really need the money for elections and these big mining firms are the ones giving away these money in exchange for getting permits um, so you know, he he's his view and, and and he's someone who would know more about it than us um, is that um, you know mining companies are, are influencing um, the government who, who candidates for the next election um, by by giving them money um, and, and and he went on to say we will again see more human rights violation red tagging of indigenous peoples farmers fishermen and so on and that quote should be available um, through the website. We'll hear the second part of that interview uh, later in the show. Uh, but you're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 855 on the AM dial. And next up, we're going to speak live with Gideon O'Bazanek, who is co-artistic director of the Rising Festival. The Rising Festival, which kicks off in Melbourne today, runs from the 26th of May until the 6th of June and comprises art, performance, music, and ceremony. There's over 130 events featuring the work of more than 750 artists. Thank you for joining the show this morning, Gideon. Good morning. The festival sounds like a huge undertaking. Could you tell us about the work that goes into creating a festival of this size and scale? Yes, well, we've been working on Rising for almost two years. Um, last year, unfortunately, we had to postpone because of COVID, so we've had sort of an extra year, and this year we have our own little challenges, but we are all good to go, and we're proceeding as planned and on schedule um, opening today. Um, it's the biggest showcase of Victorian artists in the state's history. It's a new major event for Victoria, and the only one in the state's major event calendar that isn't sport. Um so Rising is really a festival of unrepeatable site-specific performance, large-scale public art, uh, a lot of new collaborations in theatre and dance um, and really great lineups in live music. And it's all connected by uh, food, wine and actually a lot of fun. I've, I've got my uh, tickets booked for the Wilds this Friday night. I'm very excited for it. Could you tell us about that event? Yeah, sure. So the Wilds is a complete transformation of the Sydney My Music Bowl. Um, we're not treating it so much as a venue, but as a location for this really quite transformative experience. A whole bunch of designers and artists have been working on site for a while now, and um, it's really transformed the space. It's, it's a it's a labyrinthian walk through with a whole lot of site specific light sculptures. Um, working in um, kind of forest bamboo design. And we're reintroducing the ice skating from the late 80s and the 90s back to the cinema music bowl. So um, it's going to look really quite amazing. And the food offering there is really also fantastic. We've got some really great chefs um, from around Melbourne who are preparing both from very easy, quick snacks to pretty posh sit-down um, food as well. I love the um, the unrepeatable aspect of some of these uh what what you've got on offer? Can you tell us some of some of the other experiences on offer at the Rising Festival? Yeah, for sure. Um, so on the river, we have Wandering Stars, which is a fantastic uh, light floating lantern installation. It stretches from Princess Bridge and goes east towards Swan Street Bridge, almost five hundred metres long. And that also has some fantastic food and wine around that on the north bank around Burong Ma. Um, and some really beautiful stories, uh, both creation stories, uh, Indigenous creation stories, but as well as 
recent anecdotes from traditional owners about their experience with the river and also the migratory stories of the eel. And that's free and that's open from sunset pretty much going into the night. So I really encourage people to come and check that out. We also have Patricia Piccinini, uh, who's an, an iconic contemporary artist from Melbourne who is doing an unprecedented huge exhibition um, at Flinders Street Station uh, on the top floor. The mythological ballroom that people have heard about is finally opening to the public, um, but also hundreds of metres of rooms that lead up to that to that ballroom. So she's created this really incredible parallel almost universe that floats above the city up there. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Um, Gideon, uh, it must be stressful at the moment with the uh, coronavirus uh, cases appearing in Victoria again, but at the moment it looks like the events are all going to be able to take place? That's right. Look, um, we've been planning for <laughs> over two years for every possible scenario the world could throw at us, and so I'm thrilled that we'll be proceeding um, as planned and on schedule. And over the last 18 months, we've worked very, very closely with government and also the Department of Health in planning rising. So I can assure everyone that it's going to be a very safe celebration. Um, and so if Victorians want to come out and support artists, um, musicians, designers, architects, um, um, actors, a whole bunch of people who've been out of work for actually quite a long time, particularly during last year. Um, the community's really come back together and put on some incredible work. So, um, yeah, I encourage everyone to come out and, and have a look. That's such a great point because the art industry was one of the hardest hit by the pandemic. Uh, is that why um, these kind of event, events, you know, like uh, festivals like Rising are so important? They're really crucial um, because when we designed this festival, and we designed it with, with, with the artists, because there's 36 commissions actually in this festival. They're all new works. And they were, most of them were made, well, the ideas and the, the, the beginning of those works were made during lockdown and then going out, coming out of lockdown. And so it, it was a great way for artists and the community to still continue to work in the background, but also have... Um, I guess, a, a real per sense of purpose. And we want to really bring those works out to the public now. Um, and we feel the time is right. And we've worked around how are the ways that people can engage, you know, in a really rich, get a really rich experience in ways that are restricted. So because they've already been working under restrictions to make the works from the beginning, um, our COVID safe plans are really super robust. And that's why... Um, the government Department of Health made a decision yesterday that when they looked, you know, pretty forensically at our preparations, um, said that these are absolutely fine to go ahead uh, this week and next week. Fantastic. And where can our listeners go to find out more about the Rising Festival and, and to book tickets? Just look up Rising Melbourne or Rising Rising Melbourne, um, and our website's pretty comprehensive. Yeah, so it's it's yeah, it's it's everything's up there from theatre, dance, um, music, visual arts, public art, food and wine. Awesome. Thanks thanks so much for joining us, Gideon, and I wish you all the best with the Rising Festival. I hope everything gets a go ahead. Great. Yep, it should be. Yep, thank you. 
That was Gideon O'Blazenek telling us about the Rising Festival, which is taking place in Melbourne between the 26th of May and the 6th of June. And now here's Better Things by Kian. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online.
3CR Radical Radio. And we're coming back now to part two of my conversation with Andrew from the Philippines Australian uh, Solidarity Association regarding Oceanic Gold's mining operations in the Philippines. Now, the mine was refused its license in 2019 when it came up for reissue. However, recent movements from the government suggest that the mine could reopen, much to the uh, stress of local governments. I touch base with Andrew to discuss where the story is at now. Getting you on today to talk about it, I suppose, what was the update with Oceana Gold and what are they trying to leverage at this point? Where are we at with that? Yeah, so I, I think um, I mean, they they must be pretty happy with the way things going are going. Mm-hmm. They're just determined um, to reopen their mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, there's 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 no end to their lies and, and dirty tricks. Um, I am... Um, I, I did get to speak to some of the staff at Oceana Gold over the last year or so. Um, and shortly after um, Duterte had asked the DNR and Department of Finance to consider renewing, um, I, in fact, that was the first I heard of it, speaking to a, a staff at Oceana Gold, and I was shocked when she mentioned that. But um, in speaking to her, she she. The, the staff member said to me, "Oh, and um, the Barangay Council has approved the this re- renewal, which is just an outright lie. There's no way in the world, and 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 I've since you know, it's not the kind of thing I really would need to check, but it, but it's just a blatant lie. Um, and so they're very comfortable with with just lying and dirty tricks to get whatever they want." Um, and there's another kind of recent example of the dirty tricks that go on. Um, this is again uh, back in April. Um, the so the DPO Barangay Council. That's that's really the 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 local government, and that's the government that matters when it comes to allowing um, Oceana Gold to mine. So under Philippine law, they're recognised as a level of government who can say yes or no to to a mine um, taking. You know, opening up on their lands, and they've never—they've actually never said yes to to that, uh, on a barring one occasion where um, there was some bribery and the decision was quickly overturned. But but for yeah, twenty years, I've been saying no to it. So um, what happened in April were that the five members of the Bar- um, the DPO Barangay Council, who were the strongest opponents of the mine, were suspended. And they were suspended by the municipal government, the next level of government up, um, who has the right to, to do that, um, on the basis of a complaint from an Oceana Gold employee who, who had accused them of, of harassment or basically trumped up charges. Um, and the, the, the locals there reported that, um, quoting again here, they reported that there was no genuine hearing and the decision was railroaded. So... Well, we don't have solid evidence. It's a pretty clear case of um, you know, inappropriate influence being wielded to sideline opposition to to the mine. Um, yeah. And so you've got the kind of um, the Philippines Association Solidarity, you know, group. You've also got a recent campaign called the Australian National Campaign on Mining in the Philippines, um, yep. or at least I've recently seen it, I should say. Can you tell us yep. a little bit about this campaign and some of the stuff you guys are, uh, that's upcoming and you're going, you know, you're doing? 
Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it is it's interesting. It, it's been dormant for quite a while. So the Australian National Campaign on Mining in the Philippines, we have actually been around for, I think it's something like 10 years, um, essentially since, but we haven't been doing much through that group uh, for the last, I don't know, five, six years. But we did initially come together out of concerns about what Australian mining companies were doing in the Philippines. And at that time, there was there were two big companies. One was Glencore Extrata, which I think many of your listeners might have heard of as being a really, really nasty multinational, but you know, up there with Oceana Gold, mm-hmm. um, and Oceana Gold in, into DPO. And it, it, what soon happened was that um, Australian investors took their money out of this mine, um, Glencore Extrata mine. So we focused on DPO from there on. But as a as a group, we didn't do that much for quite some time, and and it wasn't until um, December last year when we heard about um, the decision of the president to to pass on it, the FTAA renewal request, <clears throat> and everyone sort of thought, yeah, well, we've got to we've got to start doing something urgently. We we reconvened, um, and so it's yeah, it's it's a good group. It's it involves. Um, uh, there are u- members of the the group of unions, uh, churches, groups like like PASA. Um, uh, there's an, a whole heap of groups. I think there's, know, there's ten or so, I suppose, um, who are, who are members. Um, and we are um, un- under the auspices of, of ANCOMP for short, Australian National Campaign on Mining in the Philippines. <laughs> We've Put out a, a press release, um, which sadly hasn't had much uptake. It did get published in Green Left Weekly, which is great. Um, and the press release was focused on um, Oceana Gold having issued their own misleading press release um, shortly after the president had made this decision, saying that um, a their their FTA renewal was supported by the majority of locals into DPO and Indigenous groups, which is totally untrue, and also saying that they're a responsible miner. I don't think I need to say any more about that aspect of it. So that's what we sort of address with our press release. And the other thing that we're doing is um, taking making complaints through ASIC about, so I guess shareholder activism kind of stuff and We've got someone in our group who holds shares in Oceana Gold that facilitates that kind of sure. approach. And mm. um, if people are looking to get involved, what's the best way to find you guys? Yeah, so it's through through PASA, the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association, mm-hmm. um, and Facebook's the easiest way. And I'll just find my notes here. <laughs> um, Google, basically Google um, the easiest way to find our Facebook page is to Google Philippines Australia Solidarity. Those words are enough to get to our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Now, we meet the last Friday of every month. Um, and we used to meet at Trades Hall, but since COVID, we've been meeting online via Zoom. Yeah. Mm. So people can message us, um, go to our Facebook page and message us if they want to join meetings and mm. we'll, we'll pass on the details. Well, look, the last thing um, that we wanted to raise was just IMARC and PASA's involvement in IMARC. That's coming up mm. uh, later this year. Can you just talk us a little bit through 
I mark and yeah, your the involvement from the group. Yeah, yeah. So, so I marks the international mining conference. So all these miners like Oceana Gold, BHP, Rio Tinto um, come together and um, talk talk themselves up and try and do business together. Um, blockade IMARC, this alliance that's um, using IMARC to, to um, shine a light on what these mining companies are doing. Um, it's been around for quite a while, I think, but PASA first got involved in 2019. And I think people will remember that big um, demonstration. There's a lot of police violence, got a lot of media. Um, a little bit unfortunate in that it just focused on that confrontation and, and so we were we went along and spoke, and we I wasn't very much involved in organising. Last year we got involved in organising, and we had a, a really good online conference. Um, there's heaps of sessions, and we did one in the Philippines. So the the silver lining to COVID, therefore, is that you know we we probably would not have done that had blockade IMARC gone along as usual. It, it sort of forced us to think. A little bit differently and yeah. and it, we're able to connect with you know get people from the philippines latin america all over the world um connected via an online conference um and so this year um we're hoping to do the same again with the online conference as well as have a blockade and try and shut down imark um that'll be um october this year mm. and that one that one's going to be heavily i'm sure on 3cr's radar so if you yeah. <laughs> it's a bit far off as of yet but um yeah well there'll be more details to follow for anyone who is interested look andrew thank you so much for coming on um it's important to touch base and check in with how things have progressed and definitely send us through any information you'd like and i can chuck it up for listeners who are interested in getting more involved in this issue excellent thanks for having me over it's been great as always that was Ardwin Jeffrey talking to Andrew Morrison from PASA. And you can continue following this issue of the Oceana Gold and Copper Mine in the Philippines on the PASA Facebook page, as well as by attending PASA's monthly Friday meetings at the Trades Hall. So thanks to Ardwin for bringing us that story. Um, we just wanted to give a, an update on the... Uh, the Victorian government COVID protection measures. Uh, the the infected person who attended the Port Adelaide and Collingwood match last weekend was in Zone Four, Level One of the Great Southern Stand. That's at the Punt Road end. So anyone who was sitting in that area or uh, visiting that area during the match should go and get tested and uh, the contact tracers will um, be picking up on QR codes as well to um, get in contact with those those people. So we'll have a reminder of uh, the new measures. Private gatherings in the home are now limited to five visitors per day and public gatherings limited to 30 people. You have to wear a face mask uh, when you are indoors unless you have an exemption, and that applies to indoor workplaces, secondary schools, and, of course, continuing to wear them on trams and public transport. And this face mask requirement applies to everyone over 12, 12 and over, I should say. So we'd like to thank all our guests this morning. It's been a busy show. We didn't get time to run our story on Australia's cultural heritage protective 
uh, legislation. So we'll be bringing that to you next week. But we'll finish off now with a song from Kate. It's called Miss Shiny. She called me diamond on the weekday. Got so much pressure. That's why this song be stuck on replay. I got pressure. She called me diamond. No time for mistake. Too scared for writing. You know I dreamed this reality since I was a young and Right now who I be and now the manifestations coming in. Now why you acting like what? Now why you acting like that? Put your thoughts into the universe and she gon' bring it right back. You so hard on yourself, mama, you don't need that. No, you your biggest critic, girl. Best believe that. Best believe that. Best believe that. Cause why? I needed to hear that. Overthink it will be the death for me And my pointless stress It won't be the remedy For my motivation that I feel I need Ooh I got pressure She called me diamond on the weekday Got so much pressure That's why this song be stuck on replay And I got, I got pressure She called me diamond on the weekday Ooh. Mm-hmm.